Well, it's wonderful to see everybody. We are glad to be home, although we uh, had a wonderful time away as well. It was fantastic. I said to Robin this morning, I said, boy, I just feel so rejuvenated and, uh, and really ready to get to work. So I'm grateful for our trip for sure, and I have a lot more to say about that. A couple of things before we get started here this morning. One is that there is a new baby here this morning, I think. Cynthia, did you have a baby? I don't know anything about this. I don't know the baby's name or anything else. Well, congratulations. What, what is her name? Missy? Missy? Misty. Misty. Got it. Okay, sorry. Very good. Well, congratulations. We're very happy for you. The world can change. You know, you leave for a couple of weeks and people are having babies. Things can be different for sure. So very nice. Congratulations. And also, like some of you may have taken note that things are different around here as well. And this has nothing to do with all the construction that we've been doing lately. Like if you were to go over here down the classrooms, I noticed that all the rooms have been painted now. They look fantastic. That's great, and uh, I think the fireside room has been painted and the, the uh, room's down the hallway, and so, again, lots has changed. But what this has to do with is not uh, the renovations that have been going on. What this has to do with is the fact that on March 15th, we're going to have one service, and we're going to start a new theme, and the theme has to do with the kingdom and building the kingdom. And so we're not going to say too much more about that this morning other than just kind of hint at it today. And as uh, things take shape over the next few weeks, you're going to see a kingdom start to be built. So that's what all of that is about this morning, is the building of a kingdom. And I hope that you make sure that on March 15th, you're here. In fact, if you know somebody from our church family that hasn't been around a lot, if you haven't seen them recently, um, and you think, boy, I'd really like to see that person back in our assembly, March 15th is a special day in which we really hope that you invite that person to come back and join us. We're going to be here together at 1010, I think it is, for our worship service. And make sure that you're here March 15th. We're going to have, hopefully, the biggest attendance of our year uh, up to that point. And, uh, and God is going to bless us richly. So March 15th, special Sunday, as we launch uh, a new series that's taking place. One of the first things I noticed upon getting back is that I could get up in the middle of the night, last night, and go to the washroom in the dark without worrying if in going from the bed to the washroom that I might step on or near some creature that could either kill me or just render the lower part of my leg useless. And you think to yourself, really, come on, are you just exaggerating things here? But in the house where we stayed a few years ago, uh, there was a missionary family that was staying there at the time, and the, the woman of the house, you know, middle of the day, walked back into her bedroom, opened up her closet door, and there was a spitting cobra inside the closet. And so she shut the door real quick, but before she did, the cobra got her in the eyes, because that's what they do. So she had to very quickly wash all the stuff out of her eyes. It took her a couple of hours to get everything out. So things like that do, in fact, happen. They killed the snake and everything was fine and she's fine. I met her, she sees fine, everything's okay. But it is interesting that it happened in the, in the closet of one of the bedrooms in the house where Robin and I were staying. 
We also heard the story of Wilson and Nancy Ciazillo, who is a couple that we support. Like, personally, our church supports Wilson and Nancy to take care of babies at, a, at their house, and we call it the Tendai House. And it wasn't that long ago, well, I guess it was a while ago now, but in, in 1987, I had met their children. Uh, they had two little girls at the time. They were living way out in a village. And later on, after I'd gone back home, you know, years later perhaps, their daughter was lying in bed one night, and she woke up and could feel something against her face. Didn't know what it was, you know, and she's half asleep. So she reached up to kind of, you know, what is that next to my face? And again, it was a cobra, and bit her on the side of the head, and uh, she started screaming. Wilson and Nancy thought that she'd been bitten by a rat. And so they didn't really do anything for several hours. And then Wilson started, the way she was screaming, and it seemed to be getting worse quite quickly, he thought, boy, I've got to do something about this. And so he went in the bedroom to see if maybe there was something else, and he lifted up a box, and there was a cobra there. So he wondered what to do. He, he first decided that they would go talk to the local medicine man, and he knew that he, he would get some problems with the community if he didn't do that. So he did do that and went and talked to them. The guy did his thing to no avail. And so he took his uh, daughter to a clinic after that. She was in the hospital for the next month. He said with her head about the size of a basketball, everything swelled up, and she was lucky that she lived. She today has a deformed ear. Uh, part of her ear is missing. But other than that, she's okay. So things like this do, in fact, happen. So I felt fortunate in getting out of bed in the middle of the night, walking to the washroom, and I didn't have to worry about what I might step on. Neither did I have to worry about what I might find lying next to my head at night and reach up to extract it. You know, Robin might have a bad dream, she might have a nightmare, or maybe a glorious dream in which she reaches over and touches my head. She's thinking long, glorious locks. She wants to run her fingers through my hair. And so I, you know, but I could reach up and I could grab that and it wouldn't be a problem. She's not going to bite me, at least not intentionally, unless she's really mad. And, uh, and I wouldn't swat her hand away as she was reaching for my follicles. Well, those are a couple of stories that indicate that things are different here than they are there. And it struck me while we were in Zambia that one of the differences between ourselves and their culture, even a culture where some of them are white and some of them are missionaries, is that we have to, in our case, put the church to work creatively to create Christian fellowship and community in a culture that doesn't automatically create it, where they much more naturally live out Christian fellowship and communal activities. And this is interesting. What I'm talking about here is something that's actually positive about their culture as opposed to ours. A moment ago, Darcy made reference to what Robin was talking about, and it's true. They are so often deprived in so many ways. But the ways in which they're deprived are made up for so many times in ways in which they actually outdo us. And some ways in which they have a superior society and a superior existence because of the things that they experience together. And so in our culture, in order for us to have community as a church, we have to do some work to have it. 
We have to have programs. We have to plan. Fellowship doesn't come all that naturally to us in our culture today. And you know, I think if you talk to older people, I would say that it was different 50 years ago or 60 years ago or 70 years ago or 100 years ago. My guess is that 100 years ago, it was easier for the church to have fellowship than it is now. We struggle to find time for fellowship today. And we have to work at it and plan for it. And there have to be programs because of the culture in which we live. And so most of the time, there, you don't go to town without taking someone with you because although town is only eight kilometers away, it's eight kilometers that takes you 20 minutes one way due to the bad road. Now think about this. How long does it take you to drive eight kilometers in your car today? If you were to get on the Deerfoot especially and drive eight kilometers at a good time. Five minutes? takes 20 minutes there, so four times as long. And it's dusty, and it's hard on the car, and it's hard on you. And then you've got to come back a few minutes later and do the same thing again. And so people don't want to do that just alone, and so they always take somebody with them. And fellowship is created. And on the way, you're probably going to have three or four opportunities to pick up people who are walking. And so there's going to be automatic fellowship created. Then, when you get to town, and town's not that big, although it's way bigger than it was 25 years ago. In fact, it was incredible to me. Some of you may have seen me commenting on this on Facebook. It was amazing how different things were there, especially the number of cars. Like, for us to see other cars 25 years ago there was just an occasional experience. Now, you go into this little community by the mission where we were staying, and there's cars everywhere. Everybody has a car, it seems like. That's not entirely true, but there are lots of cars. But everybody does have a cell phone. In fact, when we went out to the village to see Megan's family, which was a five-hour drive over a road like what I just described, we got to the village, and after being there a while, her birth father pulled a cell phone out of his pocket. This guy's five hours away from the nearest electricity and pulled a cell phone out of his pocket and said, what's Megan's cell phone number? And I didn't say it directly like that because he can't speak English. And I think it'll be very interesting if he ever calls. <laughs> or if we call him. But it's amazing that he would have a cell phone. So because of experiences like that, creation of fellowship is easier. When you get to town, you may see someone, in fact, probably will see somebody from church. And you'll have a conversation with them. Because the church is, listen to this, everywhere, and the town is very small. Here, the town is very big, and the church is very small. And so we don't see each other all the time like they do, and we miss the fellowship because of it. And then another difference is because they're always doing ministry, often together. And because everywhere around them, there's such incredible need, both inside the church and out, they're always working together on something. You're always serving either Christians or non-Christians, and therefore fellowshipping. Here we constantly recreate, often by ourselves. Those who enjoy the best Christian fellowship here, as there, are those who serve the most. And so it's amazing the way that they're always having to serve. They're always called to serve one another and called to serve others. And it automatically creates fellowship. So, why is fellowship easier for those in some other cultures? 
Well, they have less that keeps them isolated and more that brings them together. And I think we have exactly the opposite. We have an awful lot of things that keep us isolated. We have less that actually brings us together. And then the second thing is, I think they know how badly they need each other. And I think they know it better than we do. It is something in our culture ingrained in us to want to be isolated. We build homes that are completely separate. We put fences around our homes. We make it so that we don't even have to see each other when we pull into the driveway. We have things all to ourselves. We want our own. And because we do, it keeps us, I think, isolated. Well, that's different than what we see in the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts, and they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And I think the last sentence is really a product of what goes ahead of that. It was interesting that almost every day when we were there, we had a group meal of some kind with people outside of our home. Every day. Like there might have been one day or two in the two weeks when we weren't meeting with another family or families having some kind of group meal. And you didn't get the impression that it was just because we were there. They would have been doing that whether we were there or not. The fact that we were there added to the occasion, but this is just what they do. And why do they do this? Because that's what church is to them. And their whole lives together call out of them community and opportunities for fellowship. I just think it's interesting how closely that parallels what the early church was and how far we are from what it really means to be the church in this way. So that naturally happens for them. It naturally happens, I suppose, in a place like Zambia when for us it feels almost uncomfortable to have to be together that much. One of the things that I admire in our culture, I should say, is that we have people, even some who are sitting in the room today, who don't necessarily love to be together with other people. Like some of you guys especially, Like, aren't there times when you just feel like you just want to go and be by yourself? We have man caves. And we want to have rooms to ourselves where I can go and just be by myself. If I want to scratch my belly, I can scratch it. If I can want to just be alone and vegetate, we say, just think about that. We want to go and be like vegetables. Then that's what we go and be. So we can go and be like vegetables. Somewhere in some room. And I admire those of you who, in your own lives, thinking, I'd like to vegetate, nonetheless take opportunity to pursue fellowship when it's offered. And so if you are one of those people who thinks, man, I'd really like to just be by myself. For you to choose not to just be by yourself and to take the step of going out and and seeking fellowship and allowing that develop... I think that's a good thing. And I encourage you to do that. And I want to, in fact, um, 
recognize you for doing so. Like, good job for being willing to participate in fellowships when sometimes you just don't feel like it. I'm glad that you put yourself out there. If you think to yourself, I don't really want to do this, and then you end up doing it anyway, for one thing, doesn't it kind of feel good when you finally do? And I hope you continue to do so, to give yourself those opportunities of fellowship when maybe sometimes you just don't feel like it. So keep that up. Let me encourage you. I admire that, that you would take the step of saying, eh, I don't really feel like this, but I'm going to go anyway. And then in the end, I pray, are blessed because you did. So the early church experience was like that, I think. People getting together, sharing life together, and it's a good thing they did. Because if you read this passage, it says, Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And it sounds to me like we need this. We need the encouragement and blessing of being together. And so when we're in Africa and enjoying those meals or going to some Bible study and meeting together with the church on a constant basis or maybe just driving to town, there is blessing that comes. And we as a church need to be open to those kinds of blessings. And God is going to work through them mightily in our church Maybe through programs and maybe through plans that we have to devise in order for us to create fellowship. But if we take opportunity and give ourselves to those, God is going to bless us. Now, all of you know that in our church, one of the major ways that we do that is with our life group program. And we have called for people for years now to be part of life group. Some are still a bit resistant to be part of that. Again, for those of you who say, "Eh, it's not really my thing, but you go into it and do it anyway, I encourage you. And I I recognize the fact that it's hard for you. I commend you for doing so. But we have this program. We think it's a blessing that God has given us in order for us to to build fellowship one with another, and it's so important. And so Darcy is going to come now and talk a little bit about our life groups and about how crucial those are to our church family. One last word here. As he comes, let me just say, I am so pleased that we have you, sir, as somebody who works in our life groups the way that he does. He and Hope are central to this. They give their lives to it. And I don't know what our church would do if they weren't serving in that way. So thanks. I'm going to give credit where credit's due first. Most of what I'm going to talk about comes from this book, Real Life Discipleship. Kelly did a great job of of talking about relationship, right? African culture seems to be more about relationship than possessions. And I think if everybody here is honest, we'd say our, our, our culture probably is more about possessions and materialism, capitalism, uh, than relationships. Who here will give up personal possessions or personal time to give to somebody else? Well, life groups do ask that We want to have real relationships with people. And I don't mean me only. I mean people in general. God has created us, I believe, to be in relationship. It starts in the beginning of the book of Genesis. God says, it's not good for man to be alone. So I would say, well, God wanted us to have people around us. Man, woman, whatever. And so he created us to be in relationship And as Kelly mentioned, we 
have trouble where we are now really being in relationship. I don't know if you guys feel this. How many of you, the relationships you have with your brothers and sisters in Christ are confined to a Sunday morning service? You don't have to put up a hand because you might feel embarrassed to. But think, you know, how often do you see your brothers and sisters in Christ outside Sunday? And then think about that passage that Kelly had up there from Acts that says they met daily and they shared everything and they devoted themselves. Well, if you think devotion to church means Sunday morning, you should lower your chin a little bit in shame because it's not. I'm not going to make any friends here. Um, Luckily, I'm very charming, so I can offset my comments. There is there is a solution. Uh, I hope you all recognize. Life groups are important. Um, we have done a study on some numbers, so people in life groups, people not. I won't get into too much detail, but I can tell you, as first service people, you guys are a lot better at supporting life groups. And we're very happy with that. Life groups mean something to people. And uh, we need that to continue. Uh, But on the same side, if there's anything that you want to... There's cards at the back in the Connection Center that have my name on them and my email address. If you ever say, I would be part of life groups except for, send me that email so I can figure out what that is and maybe overcome it, okay? Now let me tell you a little bit about what happens in life groups in case you're not in them. And I can't speak for every life group every week, but I can speak for the plan for life groups. So we have, uh, I think it's 12 or 13 life groups now. I should know that probably, but they kind of change. We we expect in life groups that there will be what we call transparency. So when I'm having a terrible week in my life group, not in my life group, but I'm having a terrible week and I get into my life group, Transparency, openness, honesty says, I don't put on that happy face that I might do on a Sunday morning. Everything's great. Everything's wonderful. I can hold it for two hours, then go home and be grouchy all day. No. In my life group, people will actually hold me accountable to be transparent and say, they'll say to me, how was your week? And if I'm like, it was okay, they'll be like, okay is bad. An okay week is a bad week. If you say your week's great and you have a big smile, then they're like, well, tell me what was so good about your week. If you say your week was okay or bad, they don't just say, that's too bad, I'm real sorry for you, and then, you know, what's for snack? No, they want to know. And they expect me, and I'm I'm just using me as an example, because we're supposed to use I statements in group. They expect me, or I'm supposed to, tell them, you know, work was bad, I had to do this, or... I got into an accident or anything and how it made me feel. And, you know, we talk about the intellectual side, just my thought processes. We talk about my feelings. And we talk about things that I do, actions, services. Head, heart, hands is the old way. Think, embrace, change, I think, is the new things we use. We need, in our life group, to share these kind of things. And it's supposed to be in every life group. And so we have leaders of other life groups here, and I think they would all say, at least to a certain degree, they try to push transparency and openness and a relationship that goes beyond, you know, barest minimum of, of friendship or, you know, companionship. I had a thought yesterday 
when I was uh, reviewing this. And I've heard in the past people say, well, I have my circle of friends. And that's, that's my life group. Which is good. I never want to tell anybody to give up their friends. I don't know what you talk about with your friends. And a lot of what I just said, you know, with the transparency, you probably have a friend or two that you would be like, I can tell that friend anything. I share. When I have a bad day, the first person I text or call or whatever is that person. But it's not always going to be the case. But I will say, from the life group ministry side of it in our congregation, we will never say, give up those personal relationships. What we will say probably is, if you're so close to that person, bring them to your life group, because then the life group's stronger. The benefit to having a life group over one or two personal relationships, I can share a lot of stuff with Hope, my wife. Um, I'll share, I will share more with her than I will with my life group. We have a marital contract there. But we, we share stuff together with our life groups that we wouldn't share with even some of my close friends. We, I would like to bring our friends into the life group because then we all hold each other accountable. If I have one or two people holding me accountable, then I can avoid those one or two people. But if I have 10 or 12 people, it's more likely that somebody in that circle is going to be checking up on me once in a while, and I appreciate that. We believe, and again, it comes from the Real Life Discipleship Manual and the Bible, that the small group model is the model that God would sanction. I think if we look at the way Jesus talked to great masses, but he would use you know, funny stories that half the people would probably go away saying, what's that parable of the sower mean? And then he would take his 12 apostles, and I don't know, maybe a few tag-alongs would come with them, and he would sit down with them and say, this is what my parable means. He would do his real teaching in a smaller group. He would tell everybody... I mean, if you, know, if you know the Gospels, you know Jesus spent a lot of time with so big of crowds of people that people had to lower friends who were crippled through roofs, and they had to sit on the side of a mountain while they're starving. Well, not starving, but hungry, waiting to just hear little bits of the words. But he picked 12, 12 men who he spent years with, working on, preparing them to move forward because Jesus knew his plan that he was going to be gone. And so Jesus said, I I can't do that with 3,000 or 5,000 or 10,000 people. Maybe Jesus could because he is God, but he knew that wasn't the best way. So he picked 12. And those 12 got to share everything with Jesus. He rebuked them. He praised them. He shared meals with them. He sent them out to heal. He gave them tasks. That's what Life Group does, hopefully. Hopefully, at times, somebody in the Life Group will rebuke you. You will say something, and they'll say, what were you thinking? That is not what God wants. That might not be what I want or society wants. It's probably not even what you want. At other times, you're going to have some great success. And your Life Group should be the first people there to say, you know, I'm really proud of you. And they're not saying, I'm really proud of you in that little contrite kind of way that really means nothing. No, they really mean it. They're happy for you because you're like family. And then they're going to say, hey, we have an opportunity. We're going to go visit some people in the hospital. We're going to go serve at the mustard seed. We're going to go, you know, sort clothes at Salvation Army or something. Come with me. They'll give you an opportunity to serve so that stuff that you might not do yourself, 
suddenly are, you're kind of pressured into doing, and it's not pressured in a bad way, it's pressured in a good way. Now, to be, to be fair, our life groups do not operate as good as we would like them to. And I'm a life group leader, so I'm at fault. I don't invite people to help me out as much as I should in, in tasks that we do. I don't share everything. And I don't always accept when somebody calls me up and says, you want to go out for coffee or something? I'll be like, no, I'm just going to you know, lay at home and watch some TV show or whatever. I don't want anybody to come here, hear me talk and say, well, if I join life groups, it's the best thing in, on earth. Like, what a community. Everything's great. No, it's not, but you can make it better. And uh, that's what we really want to have happen. I don't know if I'm persuasive enough to convince anybody here to actually join a life group if they're not in a life group. But if I manage to uh, give you something to think about, suddenly you're like, that does sound like something that might be a little bit more appealing than, than sitting at home by myself. I hope that you will you know, contact me, check out our Connection Center, look at the, the bulletin board, see where groups meet throughout the city or which group looks like they have the smiliest faces on the little cards that we made up. It doesn't matter. Find a reason to not ignore the life group ministry here. Find a reason to actually participate, and I think we'll all be blessed. Thank you very much.